0: They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a blessing, Lord, to your people. Every word that you speak to us, Lord, is for our good and for your glory. And Lord, there is nothing that anyone can do to thwart your promises, to change your mind, or to snatch a single believer out of your hand. Lord, nothing. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would help us, Lord, to hear and to understand all that it is you have for us, that you would help me to preach, and that you would be with us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. It's to you we look, and in you we hope. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, the chapter does begin rather abruptly coming out of chapter 6. Those who dwell on the earth, those who are condemned, they have raised their cry. And this represents the final cry of the wicked, period. This is the last thing that they will ever say in this world. And it's that. It's what we read Who can stand on the great day of the Lord's wrath? And as soon as those words escape from the lips of the condemned, the vision that John is seeing stops. This revelation of judgment, it's suspended. Judgment is imminent, but it's not yet fulfilled. And a new vision appears and fills the mind of John. He sees something else. And this next one, along with the next they serve to answer that final question. There is one group of people who will be preserved through the destruction of the world. There is one group of people who will overcome, like Noah and his family did when they faced the catechismic flood and escaped in the ark. Who will it be? It's those who have been sealed, and who have had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The very ones that the mighty ones persecuted and killed in the fifth seal, the ones that the world saw as as weak, as expendable, or as evil, or dangerous, the ones that those with power, with that power, they had put to death and persecuted, they are the ones who will stand. This is the ultimate vindication of God's people and of God's gospel that the people believe. And the, the abruptness of the, of the shift in the vision almost gives the impression that those who cause such trouble for the church, they're going to see them standing there before the throne that makes them tremble. And the vision is not taking place sequential to the earth dissolving and judgment being poured out. It's not like the judgment uh, was paused so that now the saints could march in and reveal themselves. No, this is if you are going to put this on a timeline, this would be happening at the same time as the seal from verse 12 in chapter 6 was broken. Those who stand and those who are judged appear at the same time. One group on earth, one group in heaven. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because this second vision of the sixth seal, it's all things that take place when the seal is broken. And it has to do with what will happen at that end time judgment when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And one of the things we're told in Matthew is he will separate the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so you see that at the same time here, when the heavens are preparing for judgment, They are also protecting the predestined. There are four angels holding back the winds of destruction. Winds that are about to sweep away trees and seas and skies and stars. The winds that will roll the sky back like a scroll. Shake the mountains from their places. Those winds are being restrained because something has to happen first before they can be unleashed. There is a job to accomplish, to complete. There's a promise to be kept. There is a promise that was made by the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. One that He made to all of those who have trusted in Him. It's interesting, when you go through the rest of the book from now on, from this point forward, whenever you see the throne, it's always the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. He makes promises to His people and He intends to keep them. See, so far, so far, up to this point, there have been trials and tribulations, many, that these faithful people have endured. Like the Apostle said, it is through much trial and tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. And these believers, in the opening of of, uh, chapter 6, they endured much, to be sure, They have endured physical persecution. They have endured economic deprivation, death uh, that comes from wars and famines and sickness and, and many other things. But this crisis, this unparalleled judgment, the one trial that will exceed every kind of affliction that came before it, the one trial that will never be surpassed, this judgment that ends... In eternal punishment and unending hell, from this, all the people of God will be spared. The angels are holding it back until the promise is fulfilled. And so, believer, if you, you, you're in this life, and you are, if you're here, you may go through many trials and many difficulties, but they are not only temporary... They are fleeting and small in comparison. This crisis, this judgment from God is eternal. This is the the big one that you can't recover from. And God has promised that no one who trusts in Him will perish in it. And so, before it begins, an angel is dispatched with a critical task to seal all of those who belong to God. What happens in chapter 6, when the elements dissolve away, that cannot take place until every single one of God's people are identified and marked and safe from the impending reckoning. Not one will be left behind. And again, this is not preservation from worldly trouble. It's not preservation from a a seven-year tribulation, and we'll get to that next week. But this is salvation from final judgment a judgment that will make every problem that you've ever faced in this life every misery every burden all of them combined will pale in comparison there really is no comparison between everything you endure in this life and that single day of judgment you know what what does what does uh, f- the finite compare to the infinite what does a finite judgment compare to an infinite hell There is none. And the reason here God's people are preserved from it is because God seals them. The followers of Christ are sealed on their foreheads. Now, there are three ways that God's people are sealed and there are three ways this word is applied to the people of God in Scripture. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, the first thing it means is it prevents tampering. We saw this in chapter 5. Seals were used to prevent unauthorized individuals from tampering with things they shouldn't handle. Those who were not worthy could not break the seals of the scroll. And in the same way, those who belong to God, whose sins have been atoned for, they cannot be tampered with. Believer, this means that your position before God, it is sealed and secure. If you are in Christ, then your salvation cannot be threatened in any way by anyone including yourself. You don't have the authority to undo what God has done for you in Christ. You don't have the authority to do that. Now, this doesn't mean you won't have times where you doubt what God has done for you in Christ. It doesn't mean that you will maybe stumble in your faithfulness, especially when trials come. In this life, even you might endure a crisis strong enough to knock your soul out of your body. But you will never encounter anything strong enough to eject you from the hand of God. Your atonement, your security in Christ cannot be tampered with. You've been sealed. Secondly, seals mark ownership. And this may be drawn from the ancient practice of, of marking a slave. If they belong to you, then they might be branded as your property. And sometimes it was on the hand, often it was on the hand, sometimes, to make it abundantly clear, it would be on the forehead. So that no matter where they went, or if they ran away, or whatever they did, they could be identified by the mark or by the seal. Well, as believers, we belong to God. We are His, and we, uh, uh, He calls us, Paul calls us, His douloses. It's an ancient word for slave. Paul says we are slaves of God. And because we belong to Him, we're not of this world. You know, we're not counted with the worldly. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so God marks us as His. And because we don't belong to the way of this world, we won't suffer or endure the same fate as the world and the worldly do. If you're a Christian, you're a marked man. You're a marked woman in the best possible way. Marked for life. Marked for eternal life. Marked for salvation. And because you are secure, that mark cannot be changed. You know, later in the book, we see a satanic counterfeit of this mark being placed on people at the behest of the beast. They are sealed. But it's sealed for destruction. They belong to the beast. Now listen, God's people cannot receive it because they've already been marked not for destruction but for salvation they haven't been marked as belonging to the beast but belonging to the Lord it's not, uh, not marked so that they can participate in the buying and selling of goods that will perish but so that they can come and buy freely from the Lord all their heart's desire of goods that will never perish they've been sealed with the seal of God they belong to Him third Seals preserve. Things were sealed in order to be kept. And we are preserved. We are kept because God has sealed us. But the sealing doesn't preserve us or keep us from suffering in the world. It doesn't. Everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for more than a month, you can say, yeah, I, I think things got a little more difficult in the world after I became a Christian. This ceiling does preserve us and keep us from falling into the judgment of the wicked. In Ezekiel 9, Jerusalem was engulfed in idolatry and immorality. And it was about to be engulfed in the wrath of its enemies. But before that was allowed to happen, God sends an angel through the city, and that angel has a very simple task. It's Ezekiel 9 verse 4 pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and who groan over all of the abominations that are committed in it. And here you have a hint of the kind of people who are sealed in Revelation. What kind of people are they? They're a people who groan and sigh over all of the abominations that they see around them. How many times have you seeing the state of the world around you, and you just you don't know what to do. You just you sigh or you groan or you cry to God. These people are sealed and are protected from when God comes to do what is right in the world and set all those things in their proper ways. And so when the judgment of God in Ezekiel is carried out by the angels... Everyone in the city is struck down except those who have been marked by God. And it's, it's an encouraging thing to think about, isn't it? There are so many obstacles in the world that could derail our faith. You know, famines and wars could put it to the test. Political upheaval, economic collapse, family strife, churches sometimes collapse. And what do we see? God keeps His people to the end. We are sealed to be spared the worst possible outcome. And in this world, everyone will endure decades of trial. Everybody suffers. But it is only those who trust in the Lord that will eventually leave all of that suffering behind. And those people are sealed and they're identified in the next four verses as 144,000, 12,000, from a smattering of the tribes of Israel. Now, we know, we should know, that when the Bible describes the church, it sometimes describes the church as true Israel. And all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ for the Christian. All the promises. Not just the ones in the New Testament. There are The Bible is is clear. There are only one people of God. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not belong to Him, anyone who does not belong to Him are not part of His people, whether they're a Jew or not. God's people are those who believe by faith. We say, I don't know about that. Well, read Romans 4. It's very clear. Romans 4. Read Romans 9. Not all who are Israel are Israel. Jesus teaches this in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, a group comes to Him saying that we don't have to worry about repentance and believing because we're, we have Abraham as our father. Do you remember what Jesus tells them? If you were children of Abraham, you would believe in Me. But as it is, you do not believe and you want to kill Me. Therefore, you are children of who? The devil. Children of the evil one. Children of Satan. Two camps of people Jesus identifies there. Those who have faith and belong to Him. Those who reject Him and belong to the the devil. To the prince of the power of the air. And if that wasn't clear enough, Paul says the same thing in Philippians. For it is we who are the circumcision... Paul, a Jew, including himself, we with the Gentile Philippians, the Greeks. We who are the circumcision. You know what that word circumcision means? Descended from Abraham. Covenant people, the Jews. We who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are the true descendants from Abraham? It's not ethnic Jews. It's not ethnic Israel. It's those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the plain, simple, clear teaching of Scripture. And to ignore it is to ignore the plain, clear, simple teaching of the Bible. And, and we know that even if there is a future plan for Israel... It's not distinct from or separate from the church. Romans 11, it says they will be grafted back in. So they're broken off. They'll be brought back in. But back into what? The covenant people of those who have faith in Christ. Because those who belong to God, those who are His, are and always have been and always will be those who believe by faith. Therefore, this number, 144,000, is not a specific number of Jews to be taken literally. Most numbers in the book of Revelation are not specific numbers to be taken literally. And if you if you do that, you end up like the Jehovah's Witness who think that only 144,000 will be saved. No, the way numbers were used in the ancient world was different from today. For one, they weren't as precise. How many of you, you're, you're reading in the Bible and you read about numbers and you realize... Well, these aren't as precise as as our accounting would be today. Well, that's how they used numbers back then. For example, in the exile, 70 years of exile. Well, the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem one, two, three, three or four times. And if you count it all up, it's, uh, it's hard to get to 70 years. One group was 40 years. One group was maybe 72 years. One group was 60-some years. But 70 years. Well, the numbers being used... Symbolically, 70 years, seven years of rest for all of the days and years of rest that were missed. And uh, just to give you another example, if a Jew wanted to express magnitude, it was done with multiplication. You see this in the Gospels where Peter asks Jesus, How many times should he forgive? Peter says, Seven times. And the Lord answers 7 times 70. You understand that Jesus is not saying Peter, the upper limit. How many times you have to forgive? It's 490. And then anything after that, you're free. No obligation to forgive again. That's not the point. And you know that's not the point. The point is forgive as many times as you have to. There's no upper limit to forgiveness. It's the same in 2 Samuel. You hear of David's Mighty men. What are they called? They're called the 30. The 30 mighty men of David. And then you count in the list and there's 37. Right? But the number represented the group. Well, I don't think we should expect numbers to function any differently here. So the 144,000, what's that? That's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Now the word 12 in the Bible is significant. It means the complete people of God when you read, for instance, about the twelve tribes of Israel uh, or the the twelve apostles, it's a reference to all of those who are God's covenant people. For instance, the twelve tribes doesn't always literally mean twelve tribes. What about the half-tribe of Manasseh that when they're listed sometimes it's counted as one whole tribe unto itself? Or what about the tribe of Levi who is listed sometimes and others is not? What about the list here where the tribe of Dan isn't mentioned at all and both Joseph and his son Manasseh are? Not the half-tribe of Manasseh, just Manasseh. Well, you know the answer. Because when you hear the same way when you heard the, the 30 of David, you knew that there was 37. It wasn't a precise number. Here, when you hear the 12 tribes of Israel, you know that regardless of how they are counted or arranged, it's a reference to the people of God. And so 12... Times 12 means the people of God in their fullness without a single one lacking. And it fits with the sealing, doesn't it? All of the saints in times past, in times to come, and right now in this room, are sealed by God and secure. And concerning the, the number, the multitude, there are 10 times 10 times 10 of them. 10 is considered a big number in antiquity. If you wanted to say many, you wouldn't say many or a lot. You would say ten, right? Why does he need another donkey? He already has ten, that kind of thing. And if you wanted to make the number larger, you would multiply it by ten, and if larger still, multiply it again. And so you you put that together, what, what do you have? You have a number that represents the fullness of the people of God, not a single one lacking, and it's not a small number. They constitute a vast and a great multitude which is exactly what you see in the next section, starting in verse 9. But there's one more thing to notice here before we get there. Maybe you wonder, well, why is it a list then? Right? Why arrange them in 12,000, 12, according to the tribes of Israel? When you read that, it's reminiscent of something in the Old Testament, isn't it? It reminds you of somewhere else, and it's by design. When you look at this number it puts you in mind of the counting of God's people that happened in the book of Numbers, doesn't it? The, the census that happened. So they had just come out of Egypt. They're about to enter into the promised land. Now, because they had no faith, they didn't believe that the Lord could give it to them, and they disregarded or, or the, the report of Joseph and Caleb, and they believed the bad report of the other ten spies, they didn't go in. And then when they tried to go in, God struck some of them down because He said, No, you're not going in. But before that happened, they were numbered. They had a a census. And that census, in the opening of the book of Numbers, it serves a greater purpose than just to count how many Israelites there were. In the promise that God made to Abraham, He promised that He would make His descendants into a great nation... And his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the heavens or the sand on the, on the shore of the sea. Numbers chapters 1 through 7 proves that God kept that promise. It's a reminder to us that God always keeps His promises. In Genesis, God told Abraham He's going to make him into a great nation. And once you get to the book of Numbers, once you get to chapter 7, you are exhausted after reading about how many descendants Abraham had. And it's a, it's, it's a reminder to us that God's Word never, ever fails. And this heavenly census reminds us of that promise God made to Abraham to make him a great nation. He kept it to Abraham, and He'll keep it for us. But He didn't just make Abraham a great nation and give him a lot of descendants. He promised also that through Abraham's offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now those who are blessed and those who are uh, descended from Abraham really are one and the same through Christ. We find out in the New Testament that all of the nations are blessed through that single offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, and they're blessed by being added to the spiritual kingdom. They're called children of Abraham. What comes next here? Is a vision of that kingdom that transcends time and space. It's a vision of those who are sealed, representative of those who are, are sealed, but they aren't on earth anymore. They have been spared from the destruction that accompanied the dissolving of the old and the, and the shaking of all things, and now we see them in heaven. There are not 144,000, but this is the multitude that number represents. It is a number that is complete and without measure. And this is the congregation who answers the question cried out by those who are being judged, who can stand? They can stand. Those who have been washed white by the blood of the Lamb, and His blood and His blood alone can make the sinner white as snow. And what do they say? Salvation belongs to the One who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Last week, we celebrated communion, and I'm sure some of you spilled the juice. It happens. A lot of kids around. It happens. But one thing you probably noticed, it doesn't take stains away, does it? It creates them. And if you've ever cut yourself, maybe, uh, <clears throat> maybe when you were shaving, you might have had some red blotches on the collar of your shirt. Those things stain But not when they come from Christ. He is the one who wore the stain of sin and the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't stain you, it cleans you. Does that that surprise you? All of these saints in heaven, they're wearing white robes, they're clothed in in bright, shining uh, white garments. And the reason why those garments are so white is because we're told they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. How does it do that? How can blood that stains make clothes white? It's a mystery. I don't fully comprehend it. I I don't. Angels don't. And even if they understood how, could they ever understand why? I mean, that's a greater mystery, isn't it? Why would God die for me? It's ridiculous when you think about it. To think that God would give His life to redeem us? That the Lamb of God would be slain in my place as my substitute? Did I deserve that? I didn't deserve it. And neither did you. And there is nothing you could have done to deserve it or earn it. Nothing you could have done to earn yourself a place in that great multitude. And if you think you did deserve it, the one thing you can be sure of is you will never inherit it. Nobody deserves it. No one can deserve salvation. It's a free gift that cannot be bought. And you receive it by receiving Christ in faith. You, You believe. You say, what do you believe? That I'm an unworthy sinner. I am sinful. I am undeserving. And I am lost. And believing that you come to Christ believing that he is worthy and he is taking your sin away and he will welcome you then into that great multitude. It's one of the hardest things I think in the world to believe. Now, of course a child can believe it. A child can believe that Christ died and rose again for our sins and and faith in that in that gospel that doesn't change. What I mean is to believe the fullness of it or even a fraction of what it means that Christ died for me. Yes, I believe it, but if if it was on a scale, you know, a meter of belief, this being the most extreme, unshakable faith, this being the weak and trembling, you know, anxious at night kind of faith, I believe it. I, I have a hard time. I put myself about right here. When I read the Bible, when I see what it says about me, when I see what it says about sin, and then what it says about God in His holiness, we some of you were here yesterday, we watched a segment from the holiness of God. It's a terrifying thing to see the holiness of God, not because it's bad, but because we're bad. When you see that, and you see yourself in the mirror of Scripture, do you know it takes more faith than just about anything? To believe that God loves us as much as He says He does. To believe that God's not going to turn His back on us because we have sinned against Him so many times. It's hard to believe that He's as merciful and as kind and as good as He says He is. But we believe Him. And we believe by faith. And if we struggle, we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because in faith, Christ, in Christ, my sins have been paid for. And if you're in Christ, your sins have been paid for. And if you're not in Christ, your sins can be paid for if you come to Him. And you can look forward to joining that great multitude one day singing praises to God and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to the God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and no one can come to him except through Jesus. It's not going to be just us in this room who are there, and it's not going to be people who are alive today who are there. They're going to be people from every tribe and region and corner of the earth. Worshipping God together before that throne. You know, I, I think if you could ask John what amazed him, he'd say, look at all the different kinds of people. I didn't even know there were that many kinds of people in the world. The vastness of the congregation, the diversity of the congregation. God's kingdom spans every ethnicity and every language in the world. He shows no favoritism for who He lets in you see this in this great multitude, don't you? And really, this ought to be the death knell for any kind of racism in the church. No group of people is superior to another because of their DNA or their ethnicity or the color of their skin. No one is superior in God's sight because of their mastery of the English language. And neither is one group superior or inferior because of their, their privilege or their heritage. God really does have no preferences. He shows no partiality. He doesn't hold children accountable for the sins of their parents or for the unbelief of their parents. And I wish I didn't have to say this, but I do. You won't find a good sense of justice or racial equity in the world today. You won't. And you shouldn't expect to find it. In fact, you shouldn't even look for it in the world. The only place where all animosity and all walls are torn down and people, God's people can live in harmony together, the only place that happens is in the church. Because in the church, we have more in common in Christ than even our closest blood relatives. We are one in Christ Jesus. This is why you can meet a person that you have never seen before until the day you meet them. And they can be from a far-flung region of the world you've never even heard of. And maybe you can only communicate with sign language. And yet, if you're both Christians, there is a love and an intimacy there that surpasses anything that you know with even your blood relatives who aren't in Christ. We are one in Him. And even certain cultures. No one culture is inherently better than any other. And the diversity of these cultures gives glory to God. Different Different foods, different kinds of dress, different styles of music. All of these things are unique and given by God and God is glorified in the cultural diversity of His people before the throne. But every culture also has particular sins that they tolerate as well. And they have to be repented of when a person comes to Christ. Some sins are more prevalent in some cultures. Maybe, maybe a certain group of people is more tolerant of tempers and angry outbursts than others. Maybe lying and deceit is acceptable in one culture like it is in some cultures of the world. You know, there are tribes in the South Pacific Islands where cannibalism is accepted. Or others, the worshipping of rocks and trees and animals and totems. Well, none of those things are compatible with Christianity. And when a person comes to Christ, they bring many things from their culture with them. So many things that bring glory to God. But those... Sins, because they are sins, are to be left behind. And the reason I say this is because it's, it's not just a matter of one culture versus another. It's a matter of sin and righteousness in every culture in the world. And though I said no culture is inherently more righteous than others, there are some cultures that have become more righteous than others because of the influence of Christianity in them. I think of an anecdote from India in the 1800s. One of the Indian religious leaders was uh, approaching, he approached uh, the British governor and he told him that a recent ban on the practice of, of sati or, or Suti, which was the customary burning of widows at their husband's funeral. If a man died, his wife would be taken to the funeral, a pyre would be set up and she would be burned alive. He said it was insulting and meddling in a sacred custom of their nation to which the governor Charles Napier replied, Be it so. The burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pyre. But my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all of their property. My carpenters, therefore, will erect gibbets on which to hang all concerned when the widow is consumed. Let us all act according to our national customs. I think the point was made. Not all customs are alike. Not all cultures or societies are alike. And, and I say this because it's so popular today to not criticize anything in anyone's culture. And if you do, it's considered racism or colonialism or imperialism. And, and of course, from a worldly secular standard, it is. Right? On what authority... Could anyone say a people's sincerely held cultural practice of ceremonial murder is wrong? You know, if you're a a humanistic anthropologist, no God, no standard of authority in the world, no real right and wrong, all of it's socially constructed, then there is no authority to say these things. You have no authority with which to criticize anything, anywhere. But we need to think about this as Christians. And as Christians, we have a greater authority that tells us what is right, tells us what is wrong, and applies to every single individual, every human being in all of the world. It governs our, our own bodies. They're not our own. God's decrees govern our families. They're given by God. If you're a Christian, you ought to ask, not what does, what does my culture say a, a, a family should look like? What does God say a family should look like? They govern our communities, our churches, and they even exercise influence on our cultures and societies, what laws we recognize as right and righteous. And all of this is from God. You see, ask ask the question, why was the English custom opposed to burning widows? Was that because the uh, British were, were, were inherently morally superior? It's absolutely not true. They weren't. They weren't better tuned morally because they were from the British Isles. In fact, thousands of years ago in Britain, they did the same things. Strangling widows and burning virgins and children. Now the reason they stopped those things and the reason they recognized them as wrong, both at home and abroad, was because of hundreds of years of Christian influence in their thinking and in their laws. And if India had been the place where the Bible had taken its strongest hold... Certainly the tables would have turned and it may have been that an Indian governor was preventing the barbaric customs of the British. And the point is, listen, the point is it's the Gospel that makes the difference. It's Christ that makes a difference. Our goal then as Christians is primarily to preach the Gospel to all peoples and pray for them and seek the lost and teach them to obey all that He has commanded us so that we see the full number of the Gentiles like us, The lost, like we were, we want to see them brought in. I mean, that's the goal. If anything is going to change, it's only going to happen one way. It's going to happen when the people, uh, when their hearts are turned towards the Lord. And that's only accomplished by the only one who can control and direct the heart. And He works through the means of prayer and the preaching of the gospel. And as His kingdom advances and His disciples are made and taught and as the knowledge and fear of God increases in the land, whole nations are transformed to the glory of God. Now, of course, He doesn't always change the nation. It doesn't always happen this way. But it isn't going to happen any other way if the Lord does. And what if He doesn't? What if we're like Elijah? We don't see the Revival that we longed for in the land. Elijah said, I was jealous for you, God. You remember after his time on the mountain with the the servants of Baal? God shows up in fire. All the servants of Baal are, are, are killed. Elijah thinks, this is it. The nation is turning back to God. And what does he hear from Jezebel? By this time tomorrow you will be dead. And everyone who follows you will be dead. And so Elijah puts his head in his hand, and he goes off and he hides on Mount Carmel. And when the Lord comes, what does he say? Lord, I was jealous for you. I was zealous for you. Elijah's disappointed. Elijah wanted to see God show up and transform the whole nation of Israel. It wasn't going to happen for him. He wasn't going to see it. But does that mean that God's plan failed? Absolutely not we may not see it in our lifetime but the mission of God will always be accomplished it's easy to be discouraged it's easy to lose heart no one needs any help to be discouraged or to lose heart, do you? right? you've never come to someone and say, I'm feeling pretty good today can you just knock me down a few pegs? right? we do that all on our own this is why we're told to encourage one another edify one another and we need to we need to we need help to persevere and to press on. And when the church is passing through a valley, we need that help more than ever. Well, this vision of John provides it. Because here you see the promises and the commands of God fulfilled and accomplished. You want the kingdom of God to advance. You want to see people saved. I'm talking to our desires now. We want to see people saved. You want God to be honored. You want the Great Commission to be fulfilled. When all of those things seem like they're ebbing low, doesn't it make you want them and, and long for them even more? This vision is a reminder that in the end, the Great Commission is successful. And all of those longings are accomplished. In Matthew 28, Jesus sends out His church to make disciples of all the nations and all the ethnicities in the world. And John would have heard this. John would have been there. He would have heard it from the mouth of Jesus uh, before the ascension. And in this vision, he sees it complete. That's a reminder to us, again, that everything the Lord has commanded, everything He has willed, He accomplishes. I mean, imagine you're John. And you were commanded with the other disciples to go into all of the world and preach the gospel and establish churches and teach the people. And even though in your life you see some fruit of this, you know, we've gone a long way from 12 people in in Palestine. You know that there is a long way to go. And you wonder, especially with the times being what they are, persecution starting to increase, is it really going to happen? Maybe a hundred years of Roman persecution might snuff the church out. Maybe John's worried that uh, the Lord will take all the lampstands away. But then you have a vision like this from God and you realize that even though you won't see it in your lifetime, it's going to happen. The Great Commission that you are a part of will succeed. Christian, keep that in mind. God ensures that his kingdom will never fail. It will grow like a mustard seed into a great tree. And there will be times of of regression where, where it just seems like the church is moving backward. And there will be times of ascension when it's moving forward. I shouldn't have said moving backward, I should have said moving forward more slowly. Because even though sometimes the kingdom advances quickly and there seems to be a fear of the Lord triumphant in the land and many coming to faith in Christ and and at other times that will wane and, and it seems like few fear the Lord and few will be saved, you can be sure the kingdom will always be advancing to the end. The kingdom of God continues to grow. He is the God of the living. It is a kingdom of those who are alive. And regardless of how many are alive on the earth, the number of those in heaven, the number of those who belong to that kingdom, is ever increasing. Never suffers from population decline. The total number of saints throughout the ages, though it isn't always increasing at the same rate, it is always going up. Christian, we have every reason in the world to rejoice. We have every reason in the world to hold fast and not to lose heart. We have every reason to press onward in faith. God's purpose will stand. And in the end, we can be confident, 100% confident, that everything God has set out to do, it will be mission accomplished. All objectives complete. When this old life passes away to make room for the new life to come, If you are in Christ, you will stand. You who have put your hope in Him. And you will stand ready to inherit a kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's where these saints are going. That is the final destination of everyone who has put their trust in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your Word that is a blessing to Your people. Thank You, Lord, that even though even though at times, Lord, Your churches are full and at times they are less full, Your kingdom is always advancing. You are never left without a witness in the world, and You never will be. Lord, You are always adding to that great multitude of people who will be saved. You always are bringing in Your sheep. And if You're not doing it here, You're doing it in some other place in the world. Lord, You always, You always fulfill all of Your designs, all of Your plans for the good of Your people and the glory of Your name. And it's in Your name we pray, and it's in You we hope. Lord, help us to stand. In Jesus' name, Amen.